Israel, the Saviour thereof in time of trouble, why shouldst thou be as a man astonished, as a mighty man that cannot save? Jeremiah, chapter 14, verses 8 to 9. Then said the Jews, Will he kill himself? Because he saith, Whither I go, ye cannot come. John eight twenty two. And therefore, as himself said, No man can take away my soul, and I have power to lay it down. So without doubt no man did, nor was there any other than his own will, the cause of his dying at that time. John Donne by Athanatos Prologue Crucifixion and the Conscience of the West All mankind is forgiven, but the Lord must die. This is the revolutionary import of the epilogue that, two thousand years ago, a group of radical Jewish writers appended to the sacred scripture of their religion. Because they did so, millions in the West today worship before the image of a deity executed as a criminal, and, no less important, other millions who never worship at all carry within their cultural DNA a religiously derived suspicion that somehow, someday, the last will be first, and the first last. Matthew 20.16 the crucifixion, the primal scene of Western religion and Western art, has lost much of its power to shock. At this late date, perhaps only a non-Western eye can truly see it. A Japanese artist now living in Los Angeles once recalled the horror most Japanese feel at seeing a corpse displayed as a religious icon, and of their further revulsion when the icon is explained to them. They ask, she said, if he was so good, why did he die like that? In Japanese culture, good people end their lives with a good death, even a beautiful death, like the Buddha. Someone dying in such a hideous way? For us, he could only be a criminal. Her perception is correct. The crucifix is a violently obscene icon. To recover its visceral power, children of the twenty-first century must imagine a lynching, the body of the victim swollen and distorted, his head hanging askew above a broken neck, while the bystanders smile their twisted smiles. Then they must imagine that grisly spectacle reproduced at the holiest spot in whatever edifice they call holy. And yet to go even this far is still to miss the meaning of the image, for this victim is not just innocent. He is God incarnate, the Lord himself in human form. Winners usually look like winners and losers like losers. But thanks to this paradoxical feature of the Christian myth, there remains lodged deep in the political consciousness of the West a readiness to believe that the apparent loser may be the real winner unrecognized. In Christianity's epilogue to the God story that it inherited from Judaism, the Lord God becomes human without ceasing to be the Lord and, unrecognized by all but a few, experiences the human condition at its worst before winning in the end a glorious victory. By losing to Caesar, he wins a duel with the devil and defeats death itself. The Bible ends as the greatest comedies so often end, with a solemn and festive wedding. The creator of a new heaven and a new earth in which every tear is wiped away becomes the spouse of the entire human race. By losing everything, God wins everything, for everybody, and the last word he speaks, with his bride at his side, is, Come. One of many implications of this epilogue to God's life story has been that in the West no regime can declare itself above review. All power is conditional. 
and when the powerless rise, God may be with them. The motif of divinity in disguise is not unique to Christianity, but the Christian motif of unrecognized divinity judicially tried, officially condemned, tortured by his captors, executed in public, buried and only then rising from the dead and descending into heaven, is, if not literally unique, then at least unique in the breadth of its political influence. Every verse in Sweet Little Jesus Boy, a black gospel tune sung at Christmas, ends with the wistful line, And they didn't know who he was. As his executioners nail him to the cross, Jesus prays, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Luke 23:34. Wherever lines like these or the ideas behind them have spread, human authority has begun to lose its grip on unimpeachable legitimacy. In the West, any criminal may be Christ, and therefore any prosecutor, Pilate. As the abolitionist poet James Russell Lowell put it, Truth forever on the scaffold, wrong forever on the throne, yet that scaffold sways the future, and behind the dim unknown standeth God within the shadow, keeping watch above his own. The great Western myth is designed to raise a second, more profound, and more disturbing question, however. If God had to suffer and die, then God had to inflict suffering and death upon himself. But why would God do this? To comprendre, c'est tout pardonner, the French say. To understand everything is to forgive everything. Every perpetrator was first a victim. Behind every crime stretches a millennial history of earlier crimes, each in its way an extenuating circumstance. But to whom does this infinite regression lead in the end, if not to God? The guilt of God is certainly not a Christian dogma, and yet it is an emotionally inescapable implication of the Christian myth, visible and audible in countless works of Christian art. The pathos of those artistic enactments, those masses and oratorios, passion plays and memorial liturgies, and above all those paintings and sculptures in which the unspeakable is left unspoken, is inseparable from the premise that God is inflicting this pain upon himself for a reason. The real reason, as Albert Camus wrote in his haunting novel The Fall, is that he himself knew he was not altogether innocent. A rural American folk hymn from the early nineteenth century captures this pathos in words of striking simplicity. What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul, O oh my soul! What wondrous love is this, O oh my soul! What wondrous love is this that caused the Lord of bliss to bear the awful curse for my soul, for my soul, to bear the awful curse for my soul? To God and to the Lamb I will sing, I will sing. To God and to the Lamb I will sing. To God and to the Lamb, who is the great I Am, while millions join the theme, I will sing, I will sing. While millions join the theme, I will sing. The great I Am is, of course, God himself. The Lamb, who is the great I Am, is that same God turned into a sacrificial animal. The emotion the hymn is intended to evoke is rather like what many feel on visiting a battlefield where grave markers stretch to the far horizon. So many subjected to capital punishment, and so few surely guilty of anything approaching capital crime. Why had they to die? And did they die for me? What wondrous love was this!
yet what brings tears to the eyes of some brings vomit to the mouths of others. For some, a military cemetery is a monument only to vanity and hypocrisy. For some, the crucifixion will ever be what it was for Friedrich Nietzsche in The Antichrist. God on the cross. Are the horrible secret thoughts behind this symbol not understood yet? All that suffers, all that is nailed to the cross, is divine. All of us are nailed to the cross, consequently we are divine. We alone are divine. Christianity was a victory, a nobler outlook perished of it. Christianity has been the greatest misfortune of mankind so far. If Apollo and Dionysus are divine, then the brilliant and passionate are godlike. If the crucified Christ is divine, then the suffering are godlike. He is their ideal, and they pursue it through their own suffering. All of us are nailed to the cross, consequently we are divine. Nietzsche found this dignification of suffering perverse, a wanton inversion of the natural order. Spiritually speaking, he said, the early Christians stank in his nostrils like Polish Jews. Nietzsche's visceral reaction, like his visceral anti-Semitism, commonly prompts a visceral counter-reaction, but by this visceral intensity on both sides, we may measure the power of what he was reacting against in the first place. His reaction was not gratuitous. He had seen, and seen correctly, something utterly shocking at the heart of the Christian myth, a frightening hidden premise, to which the genteel Christianity of the late nineteenth century had grown numb. And he was prepared to offer a shocking anti-myth in order to make the original horror visible again. In The Antichrist, written in the last months before he lost his mind, Nietzsche asked,